I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. We're on our eighth season where we're talking about Asian American sci fi. And we're taking the next three episodes to talk about the web and TV series Future States, which ran for five seasons from 2010 to 2014. I think part of like why we're spending so much time on it is I think up to this point in the season, we've sort of been like, this is sort of sci fi, maybe not sci fi. <laughs> This moment with Future States, these are real sci fi movies. Yes. Future States was a production of ITVS. These are commissioned short films, each directed by a different director, that would play on public television and then also later on YouTube、um, and on their website. It was spearheaded by Kareem Ahmad, who was like a producer, worked at public television, later on with Sundance. He recently resigned for Sundance. But in any case, like back in 2010, 2014, he put together this incredible slate of independent American filmmakers. And the challenge was these are all films, I don't know, usually about like 15 minutes or so, tackling some issue of the future. And it could be, I don't know, like five years in the future, it could be 20 years in the future. But all of these films are something tied to social issues. That was the challenge. I don't know if there were other stipulations, probably budgetary and scheduling. Each season had 10 or so episodes. And yeah, they did it for five seasons. And looking back, it's pretty amazing the filmmakers they got. They got like Barry Jenkins before Moonlight. They got Alex Rivera, Raman Barhani, who was already pretty big because he made Mad Push Cart. And so those are like the famous directors. But I think for us, as people who are following Asian American cinema in the 2000s, we also know that they got some of the, the big names of Asian American cinema. So this is also a watershed moment in Asian American cinema because I don't know, I can't think of another project that enlisted this many Asian American directors to make short films that we're going to play nationally. And the convening concept was related to the future and sci fi. Therefore, we wanted to spend that much time on it this season. One of the directors that they got for the series was Greg Pak, who we started the season with, with Robot Stories. And he's kind of like the guy when it comes to Asian American sci fi, not only in film, but in the comic book world. And so for part one, we're going to actually start with an interview with Greg Pak. We just asked him about everything from Robot Stories to the two shorts that he directed for Future States Mr. Green and Happy Fun Room. Next week, we're going to go through a couple shorts from Tony Chopra and JP Chan. And then for the third one, we're going to talk about Jennifer Pong's Advantageous, which started as a short film in this series, but was later expanded to a feature film. And it's so good that it deserves an episode all of its own. Yeah. So let's start with the Greg Pak interview. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our podcast. I am thrilled to be on the podcast and really appreciate the invite. I mean, we were talking about this before, but I really、uh, respect and appreciate what y'all are doing. 
keeping the history of Asian American cinema thriving and alive and uh, remembering those of us who made features 20 years ago. It's, <laughs> a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Thank you. I think I remember like, because Ada and I first met at UCLA when we were working on a website called Asia Pacific Arts. And I remember like on the original agendas for our for our meetings, Robot Stories is on there. Because I think that's when the film was coming out, right? around 2004, 2005. I, I remember that name. I must have been sending you guys stuff and asking for help to get the word out or something. I really have a vivid vision of that too, of starting this internship at UCLA that was about Asian American arts and entertainment. At that point, I probably didn't know that much about about it and just seeing like robot stories as one of like the first ones. It's funny. So it's even like in our own history of covering Asian American cinema, we're like, oh yeah, it starts with stuff like robot stories. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you. I always like hearing nice things about my stuff. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Well, well I wanted to ask, because um, when robot stories first came along, it, it felt unlike anything else that was coming out of Asian American cinema. And I'm curious like how you got to that point, because your first short film was called Fighting Grandpa. It won a Student Academy Award. That film is very much in the molds of Asian American cinema as we know it, right? It's about like history and Asian American intergenerational issues. It's very quote unquote realistic. We still kind of embrace Asian American for like capturing authenticity and our real histories and such. Robot Stories is not exactly that. So I'm curious like how you decided to make the leap into science fiction. Fighting Grandpa wasn't actually my first short. I'd done a ton of different short films before that. But your point is well taken in the sense that I absolutely told stories and made shorts that kind of fit within this sort of expected area of Asian American storytelling at the time, which oftentimes boiled down to second generation wants to do things, first generation doesn't want them to do. And uh, either exposing some kind of family tragedy or, or just comedy hijinks, you know, like that sort of immigration family story, multi-generational immigrant diaspora kind of storytelling. So I made a short film called Mr. Lee, which was about a Korean mother who finds a black man in her daughter's bed and then made Fighting Grandpa, which is a documentary about my Korean grandparents. And these things sort of like fit, fit that kind of mold, right? But at the same time, you know, I grew up reading Ray Bradbury and I was a Star Wars kid and I loved Lord of the Rings and I played D&D and I loved Westerns and film noir and would go see genre movies and classic movies every weekend when I was growing up in Dallas at the repertory cinemas. Dallas had this amazing independent repertory film scene, uh, which people don't necessarily know about, but uh, it's actually a great, great city for film. And I grew up in that. And then I, when I was in college at Yale at the time, there were like all these different film societies that would play classic films and cult films on 16 millimeter every weekend. And so some weekend I'd literally see seven different movies on these sort of student run film society, small screens projected every weekend. So anyway, so I loved all kinds of different storytelling, all kinds of genres, storytelling. And so it has always been a real interest of mine to combine genre storytelling with diverse storytelling, you know, getting people who aren't usually seen up on the big screen, up on the big screen or in the pages of comic books, but to combine that with fun genre hijinks. That's how Robot Stories came about. I just had had these ideas over the years and I'd written some of them just with no idea how I was going to get them made as short films. These ideas that had kind of, you know, big high concept sci-fi ideas, robot related or artificial intelligence related ideas of going on. But at the core, they were about some human struggle, some everyday but intense emotional story it was at the core of all these. And they all had Asian or Asian American characters. And at a certain point, I was like, oh my God, I've written three of these things. And I have no idea how I could get any of them made as a short film because nobody's buying at the time. No one, I mean, now too, no one's really funding or buying 20 minute short films like this. But 
if I put them all together and write a fourth, I, I got a feature, you know, an anthology feature. And, and that's what I did. Um, and that's how it, that's how it came together. What were the first three and what was the fourth? So the first three that I'd written, I'd written Clay, which is the last story about the old man who's basically being pressured by his society to uh, digitize his consciousness and let his body die, because that's what people do. And then uh, I'd written My Robot Baby, which was the story that Tamlin Tamita and James Saito star in, where a couple, uh, in order to adopt a baby, you first have to take care of a robot baby. And I had written the second story, which was The Robot Fixer, about a mother who's trying to bond with her estranged son who is uh, now in a coma. She's trying to understand him by completing his collection of robot toys that she never cared about. So I'd written those three and I realized, oh my gosh, these kind of touch on different stages in life, really. You know, I mean, there's one about with a baby in it. There's one with a mother and her son. And then there's one about an old man facing death. And so I, it felt like just thematically for this kind of allegorical human life we're going through, I needed something with young adults and a love story, really. And that's what Machine Love became. So I wrote Machine Love. Machine Love was the last one. And that was the one about a couple of androids, abused and lonely androids who, uh, well, I won't spoil it. But. We can say that you were in it. Yes, I, I was. Yeah, I want to ask you about casting yourself in that. <laughs> well, it's interesting because without bothering to justify it, just because it felt right, with all of these stories, I had written them with Asian or Asian American leads. And when it came to think about how I was going to cast uh, Machine Love, I mean, I had spent years doing improv comedy and I was a theater kid in high school, among other things. And I, I kind of just felt like I could do this and I wanted to do it. And it felt right to me also. I mean, my thinking was when they actually make androids that are walking around and looking like people that they would manufacture them to be racially ambiguous and that there was something interesting there about casting these androids with multiracial Asian people. And Julianne Hanzelka Kim played the other android, amazing actor. That was the unspoken thing there, that, that it made sense to me that those characters would be Hoppa. You know, like and people can read whatever they want into that. It's about like, these are a couple of people who don't quite fit into the existing categories. You know, they, they kind of blend in, but they don't necessarily fit in, if that makes sense. And that that was, uh, you know, it gave another level to the storytelling. It reminds me of this idea that I actually thought about when you were talking about generations and like how Asian American cinema typically is so obsessed with intergenerational conflict. But generations is also a technology term. It's like, what's the next generation of an iPhone or something or a robot, right? And then the way in which mixed race actually fits in both concepts, then future generations of Asian American families will be mixed race. And then perhaps future robots will be as well. I don't know if that's something you've ever thought about. That's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of kind of, I don't know. I mean, I have very ambiguous feelings about the way multiracial people have been used symbolically in storytelling for years, you know, for generations. In Westerns, for example, there is a long tradition of having characters who are half white and half Native American. And they're often like played as these sort of savage half-breeds, you know, and in a way like Oftentimes they're the hero of the story, but they're also seen as like, oh, they've got the, you know, they've got this capacity to do things that the regular white people can't do. You know what I mean? And that's, 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 that's not really cool at all. And, uh, you know, then there's like the tragic mulatto character, which is, uh, you know, a huge part of American storytelling as well. And, and then there's also this kind of like, 
fantasy of like, oh, in the future, everybody will just be, you know, beige and uh, it'll be this kind of racial paradise where no one will care. So there's a way in which being multiracial gets fetishized in that kind of a way too. So, you know, I have complicated feelings about all of that. Uh, and I, you know, mostly I'm just, I think there's a lot of value in just depicting people as people, as individuals and sticking people in stories without justification. There's always like this pressure to say, well, why should these characters be Asian? It's like, I have no answer for you. It's just the way it is. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, that's what I feel in my heart. And oftentimes I will have an answer that sort of is more satisfying to people when they ask that question. But, but my gut feeling is like, it needs no justification. This is the world we live in. You know what I mean? And why not? Why not? Yeah. In uh, more recent work, I've done a couple of books with Jonathan Colton and Tak Miyazawa and other creators, these children's books based on Jonathan's song, The Princess Who Saved Herself. So we were adapting this song into children's books, which was hugely fun. But one of the things that I wanted to do from the beginning is just make this character multiracial, just have it be that way. You know what I mean? And, and not explain it, just have it be, you know, this multiracial kid living her best life. And we did it and it's cool. Why not again? You know, in the opening lines of that book, there's a long string with many different names from many different languages in her name, you know, Chang Epstein, Takahara de la Garza champion. You know what I mean? Like, and it sounds like a joke and it is a joke. It plays like a joke, but it's also real. I, I can't tell you how many people I know in New York who have five, six different backgrounds like that. You know, that's the lived world. Why not let it be reflected? As you started talking about children's books, I was like, that's right. You've made children's books and the Kickstarter thing. We have ABC Disgusting at home. You've just done so many things that I forget. I think that is one of the great glories of my career and also one of the things that makes it confusing to people. And it's a little more sellable in terms of building a mainstream career to like be known for one big thing and you just keep doing that on a bigger and bigger level. It's a little uh, it's a little more confusing to people when you do six or seven different things. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, my, my take has always been I am going to I will jump on any chance to tell a story if I can keep making a living and tell cool stories. And I'll jump on any genre or any medium. You know what I mean? I've worked in film. I just directed a couple of podcast episodes. I did improv comedy back in the day. I, I'm writing poetry now. I got a new book coming out called I Belong to You slash Motherland which is a illustrated book of poetry that's also been adapted for um, it's the libretto of a choral music piece that's being performed in Austin, but it's about growing up in Texas as an Asian American kid and belonging, but not quite belonging. And, and it's also about my relationship with the natural world and the uh, life and death of my mother. So it's a lot of different things. Again, a little tricky to nutshell that kind of thing, but that's real life. That's the breath of the human experience. Like that's what you're chasing. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, so any chance to do storytelling that, that, that matters in whatever form, I'm, I'm jumping on it. The way I've sold myself in a way that I think is honest is to say that I like to combine genre hijinks with real emotional storytelling. That's been a huge part of, of what I've done. That was robot stories. That's also all my comics work. Um, I'm always trying to find a, the emotional heart of a story, but at the same time, have a huge amount of fun. And with this big impulse towards representation worked into all of that. Do you feel like working in science fiction or other sort of like speculative genres opens up the possibility of talking about the real world in a way that you couldn't? Of course. of course. Yes, yes. I mean, I've been thinking about this for decades, literally decades now. With Robot Stories, for example, it's a tiny little independent movie. We self-distributed. We got a couple of distribution offers. It just didn't make sense. And we ended up self-distributing, taking it out to getting it booked by independent cinemas around the country. And we got a ludicrous amount of press for such a tiny little film. And we got great audiences for such a tiny little film. And that depended on three core audiences. We got people who like sci-fi, 
we got people who just go to art house cinemas and we got Asian Americans. And those were three groups that we could reach out to and find and hook. And the film worked for all three of those groups. And we needed all three of those groups to do as well as we did. And as a result, you ended up getting sort of like an art house movie in front of mainstream sci-fi fans. And you got a movie with Asian American leads in front of sci-fi fans and people who love art house movies. There is this kind of way in which you appeal to one aspect of somebody's interest and then they get pulled into the other aspects that your your project is bringing to the table, you know? So it felt good, you know? And it felt like, okay, this this works. This thing I've been theorizing actually makes sense that it may be possible. Of course it's possible. I mean, I always like you know, believe the audience is out there. You just gotta, I mean, this is the lesson of Spike Lee. Spike Lee was like, the audience is there. I'm just going to make these movies by hook or by crook and prove that the audience is there. And then it'll hopefully be easier to make these movies. 15, 20 years ago, I was saying in 15 years, you know, (laughs) funders are going to realize that you can't not make movies with Asian American leads. And, you know, you have to do it to make money. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's going to become an obvious thing that you can make money by doing it. And it took a little longer than I predicted and hoped, but that's kind of where we're at, where it's still ridiculously hard, but there's never been a better time, I think, to be a Asian American creator in terms of having a shot at mainstream funding. Again, not that it's easy and not that it doesn't come with strings and not that people's hearts aren't broken by the industry every single day, but, uh, but there's more opportunity now than there certainly was 20 years ago. It's fun looking back at a lot of the films we've been looking at this season, but like your films in particular, because they're set in the future, but not that much in the future. <laughs> so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I don't remember the exact dates, but you made robot stories a certain time in the future, but now it's like way in the past. And your future states shorts too. What was the decision behind setting it just in the near future? And what's it like looking back now, now that you can sort of think about your prediction? They basically exist in alternate realities now, you know what I mean? Which is cool. Everybody knows what a multiverse is now, so that's, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Um, part of that is just budgetary. You know what I mean? Like I, I've never had the kind of budget that would let us create a convincing 2056. You know what I mean? Setting things in the near future makes it just possible to make a movie without raising all these questions. Of like how come the cars aren't flying or, you know, whatever. Uh, that's a little different now in the sense that digital effects are more prevalent and affordable than they were back in the day. But still, I mean, what we tried to do was lean into it. Like in Robot Stories, we could have used the latest Max. Instead, we used Max that even at that point were 10 years old as props. You know what I mean? So having that kind of retro future is a way to lean into it. With Robot Stories, I think we made it, you know, we shot that thing in 2001. And I think the title card says 2007 uh, (laughs) is is when this thing is happening. Even at the time, I knew that was wildly overestimating when we were going to have androids walking around. You know what I mean? But um, I don't know. I I think 2007 felt very far away in 2001, which is... (laughs) a little ridiculous but it's you know it's it's its own little multiverse story right with the future states mr green story so that story stars tim kong and betty gilpin amazing actors and it is about a dude who works for i I don't remember what name we gave the agency it was like the united states agency of global warming or something like that like he basically he works for the government trying to mitigate global warming but it's in the future and it's too late they blew it you know it's happened venice is drowned canal street in new york city is now it's a canal again it's literally a canal filled with water again and that's it um and now it's just you know, trying to to mitigate. I mean, the, the thing opens with him basically giving a, a keynote speech at some 
conference and everybody in the audience is sweating and fanning themselves because it's so freaking hot. And uh, he's like, we, you know, we blew it. You didn't push me hard enough. But there's a big sci-fi twist, which has to do with this whole idea of change in the face of climate change. The most extreme personal change you can imagine in the face of climate change. What would that look like and entail and mean? But we set that and I set that. I shouldn't say we, it was entirely my choice. You know, he's got a, a card behind him being projected at this conference that says 2014. And so I think we made that in 2007. So again, I was like only setting it seven years in the future. Even in post, I was like, I should change that and make it 2040. But (laughs) I didn't have the budget to do a little tracking change. I couldn't manage that technologically and budgetarily. So we just let it slide with 2014. That one, I mean, 2040 would have been a little bit more realistic in terms of the sort of actual physical climate change that we're seeing there in terms of sea levels rising and cities being flooded and and seeing the actual impact of that. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing monstrous stuff happen every day. I mean, there was just an article in the New York Times about the Great Salt Lake and the fact that it's drying up. It's literally drying up as a result, like arsenic that's on the, the bed of the Great Salt Lake has a better chance of being blown up into the air. And like, it, it makes the whole environment more toxic. It's like astounding and, and horrifying and it's real. But the uh, specific examples that show up in Mr. Green, they were not going to happen by 2014. And I knew it at the time. So that's a bigger problem to me than robot stories, because the stakes are not the same with robot stories, like sort of having a alternate universe where uh, AI becomes a viable thing by 2007. That doesn't have the same political implications as doing a climate change story where extreme climate change happens in 2014, because then that feeds into people just being able to dismiss your film, Mm. dismiss the thing by saying, ah, that's, it obviously didn't happen by 2014. Therefore, none of this matters. I don't have to even think about it. That stuff will happen. It'll just happen later on down the line. So it would have been better if I'd had a, a later date in that one. I'm not trying to make you question your... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's, I, this is the thing I thought about, though. You know what I mean? Like, I don't talk about glitches in my work that much because why would you uh, <laughs> do that publicly? What's the point of that? But um, I mean, I don't do it also in part because like with the comics, for example, any given issue of a comic, there's somebody out there who loves it. And I'm not going to be the one who's going to go out there and say, this thing that I worked on is garbage. I'm not going to try to like make people feel bad about liking something that I worked on. And also, it's incredibly hard to do any of this stuff. And so I don't want to like knock stuff seeming like I'm blaming my collaborators for anything. With this one, it was entirely my choice to use that date. It's all my fault. No one else had anything to do with that. But at the same time, it's, you know, I, I think it's valuable to... uh Think about this stuff, you know what I mean? Particularly when there's a question of representation or um, political impact or something like that. So you're talking about Mr. Green and then you mentioned the budget and all that. I'd like to step back and talk about Future States for a bit because I'm a longtime fan of Future States. We've shown many of the shorts at our film festival, but I actually know very little about how this all came to be. Um, and especially because you have a short, uh, Mr. Green, which was in the first season of Future States, and then Happy Fundum, which is in the last season of Future States. So you've kind of been around for it. How did you first hear about Future States and how did you get involved? I got an email. Kareem Ahmad was working at ITVS and I'd known Kareem for a number of years, I, I think through the Asian American Film Festival circuit. I think at some point I'd served on an ITVS screening committee for one of their grants and all of that. I, I think that's how I started to establish a relationship with Kareem. He's awesome. And he had this tremendous idea idea, which was very similar to the kind of stuff that I cared about. I think Kareem just sent me an email and asked if I had, you know, a project that might make sense for this. I was obviously thrilled about it and came back and pitched some stuff. And I think that's the way it happened. I don't think they had an open call for that first season. I think they reached out to filmmakers that they knew and invited us to, uh, to pitch. 
And it's quite an impressive roster of filmmakers. And, and looking back on it now, like many Asian American filmmakers were involved with feature states. As well as like, I mean, Barry Jenkins did an episode. Like Alex Rivera did an episode. Ramin Varani, of course. Yeah. Did you know who else was working on other short films? Did you feel like you were part of a cohort? Yeah, well, particularly in the uh, the third season, because in that third season, we actually got together and did like a big creative summit. And uh, we we worked up sort of a shared universe in which these stories would happen. We had this whole idea of a shared timeline. And when those films were released, it was done through a website where there was this whole like interactive element to the whole thing and, and sort of a meta story that linked them. It was cool. It was cool. It was an intense experience. You know, I mean, it was, uh, it, you know, similar to the kind of shared world building I've been doing in comics with different creators. You know, those kind of creative summits are very familiar to me and a lot of fun. So it was a it was a neat experience. What do you remember of like after the first season came out, the kind of response and the kind of momentum it created? Because not every series gets five seasons of something. I remember in that first season, at least one of those films went incredibly viral. It was the one about the life of a plastic bag, and it was narrated by Werner Herzog. So, um, and it's it's tremendous, you know. I mean, it's just this wild thing, and you can imagine Herzog doing this uh, gravelly voiceover, uh, you know, mordant voiceover for this plastic bag, and it was all about plastic waste. That was the viral breakout of of all those films deservedly so so that was you know it's very exciting right um the third season because there was this kind of overarching meta story and everything it was incredible and ambitious and really cool i don't know what the viewership was because it's harder for something like that to go viral you know what i mean like what goes viral is something that's quick and snippy something that's a um in-depth interactive experience on its own platform, it's hard for a thing like that to, to bust through. I mean, this has been the, the challenge of everybody working in uh, new media, right? You know, like motion comics, all of this kind of stuff. There have been all of these moves to use this incredible technology to do cool new things. And it's incredibly cool. And for the folks who, you know, have that wherewithal and, and interest and who, who delve deep, it's incredibly rewarding. But in, you know, in the attention economy, if you can't click at it from a Twitter window on a, or whatever, there's just a huge lost audience. Then again, that's just anybody going into this knows that that's the challenge, right? Maxing audience is not necessarily the goal. One of the goals is just to stretch this thing creatively as much as you can and to see what this technology is capable of and what kind of storytelling you can do with it. Well, certainly like in 2010, when season one came out, social media was not even what it was in 2014 when season five came. So you're sort of mapping the years of rapid change in the way that we consume media. And it seems like the series itself had to adjust to that. Yeah. No, I mean, it's funny, too. Like back in the day, in 1999... <laughs> 2000, I had a couple of short films on Adam Films. Adam Films used to be like the place to go look at short films. I had a, a porn spoof starring David Henry Huang called Asian Pride Porn. It was a spoof basically taking this notion of Asian male representation to an extreme. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, Asian men have been, you know, like emasculated in American media. So here's porn, you know, that was starring Asian men. Anyway, so, so it was this big, you know, spoof satire thing. And it was one of... Adam Films top 10 films for months and months and months, you know, because it started with an A and it had porn in the title and it was three <laughs> minutes long. Talk about your Trojan horse. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure there were tons of people who are hoping that they were going to get some actual, you know, some actual skin instead getting a little satirical lesson in, in uh, Asian American media representation. It's kind of 
I don't know. I'm kind of in love with that. But um, but yeah, you know, I mean, like this idea of like crafting stuff to fit the boxes, but then reach audiences that wouldn't see stuff otherwise is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the internet, right? That's how we try to use it. But then the internet just uses us. <laughs> I love that you brought that up, though, because I think I found it when we were doing robot stories. I think it's on your YouTube site still. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine me having a conversation with Brian as we're like, okay, what should we talk about for robot stories? And I was like, you know, he did like a Asian porn film star, David Henry Huang and Michael Kong. <laughs> That's part of his repertoire too, right? <laughs> as well as the kids' books. Yes, exactly. It's kind of funny. I mean, it, I think from conception to actual production and getting that film out in the world was, it was just a matter of months. You know what I mean? Like, I, th I think we shot it maybe even two weeks after I wrote it. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of energy and speed at which we suddenly were able to work when these tools became available. You know, like this was 1999 when uh, digital video was still really new and digital editing was still really new. I think Final Cut Pro only came out in 1998 or something. Um, so for a while we'd had digital cameras where you could shoot mini DV and suddenly instead of shooting 16 where you're it's costing you hundreds of dollars every time that camera's unspooling a nine dollar uh mini dv tape if you can borrow a camera get your hands on a camera you could shoot an hour for nine dollars you know an hour on 60 millimeter film would be to, to get that developed and, and everything it's like thousands um so uh suddenly stuff became really easy to shoot but it was still hard to edit because Avids, I mean, unless you were in school and had access to an Avid. But then Final Cut Pro came out. And suddenly Final Cut Pro, it's like if you can get a hold of a copy of Final Cut Pro, you can edit for nothing on your home computer, you know, assuming you have the, a Mac or whatever, you know. And so suddenly you could, you could shoot a short film in a weekend for $300 and get it out in the world. With your friends. Yeah. That's one of the really fun parts for us making this podcast where we're just trying to dig up older things that people know about and then you find stuff like that and you're like, wait, that's like Greg Puck, David Henry Huang, even like robot stories too. And then, you know, to a certain extent, future stage. It's fun for us to sort of imagine the scene back then. Nowadays, you look back and you're like, oh, you guys were the pioneers of a lot of stuff. But imagining that time where it's like, oh, you guys were just in each other's movies a lot. It was just a community and you guys are helping each other out. And I feel like these movies tell that history a little bit, you know, there's that person, that movie, that person, that movie. And it honestly really was a special time. You know, there was a filmmaker named Stephen Bai who founded a group eventually called the Asian American Filmmakers Collaborative, AKA the workshop, far too complicated a name. We, but we used to get together a bunch of filmmakers, Asian American filmmakers in New York City. We'd get together every, I think every Wednesday night and we just workshop stuff. A lot of us had just recently graduated from film school and we wanted to kind of keep that vibe going where we were getting feedback on our stuff. And eventually we made an anthology film together. Everybody made a three minute short, just something in New York City. And Asian pride porn was my contribution to that. It was a trip, you know? I mean, Rhea Tajiri, incredible <laughs> filmmaker. She also plays a role in Robot Stories. Yeah, I mean, there was just a lot of people who came out during that time who were part of all of that. And then there were all these actors who were also, if not directly involved in that, were also just around. And, and it wasn't just in New York. A lot of us were traveling with our short films and feature films and going to all these different film festivals. And there still remains this amazing network of film festivals. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was out on the on the festival circuit with Robot Stories when uh, Better Luck Tomorrow was still out in film festivals, you know? And so I remember like walking into a train station in Philly and and then ending up getting on a train with Sung Kong and these other dudes from Perry Shen and the other, these other dudes from uh, Better Luck Tomorrow and, you know, hanging out. It was, 
it was it was a special time. Well, I was really honored to be able to play Happy Fun Room at the San Diego Asian Film Festival. And it remains one of my favorite Future States shorts. Um, it feels very current, actually, this idea of, you know, living in something like a police state, but also the next generation being OK with that <laughs> or, or like not wanting to fight that anymore. Uh, Happy Fun Room, for those who haven't seen it, it it's, this is still on YouTube and I highly recommend people check it out. Sort of like in the guise of a, of a fun, colorful kids show, uh, Cindy Chung plays a TV host um, where she's trying to use the kids TV format in order to warn the kids against fascism. <laughs> uh, but but it seems like the kids are, they're just laughing and they don't take it seriously. Yeah, it was a, um, like, where did that all come from? You know what, the, the, the original kernel for that was, I had this notion of like, oh, what would a libertarian kids show look like? You know, because all <laughs> these kids shows are all about sharing and, you know, respecting each other and all this kind of stuff. And libertarianism is not about sharing. You know what I mean? So um, I think that was inspired at one point because I, I think I saw some cited put up a recap of like the fountainhead and, and it talked about like an architect makes a great sacrifice for blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, he doesn't. Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, like the libertarian angle is like, you don't make create sacrifices for other people like that's not the core of it it's about anyway so the notion was what do you do you know like what would that be like a libertarian sesame street i mean that's sort of like a, a one-note joke and also as we developed this shared world in this future states thing where there'd been like this uprising and warfare you know with robots in the streets and all of that kind of stuff it was like okay what would a kid show look like in that kind of a world and then what does it look like years later when you know somebody who's still clearly traumatized by it is still grappling with that you know i haven't actually rewatched it anytime recently but um just thinking about it that whole notion of personal and collective trauma feels incredibly relevant right now you know i mean i'll, I'll say that much um we haven't been attacked by robots in the streets but we've been attacked by a lot you know uh and uh so um and Cindy Chung, who is the star of that, one of my favorite people and favorite actors in the world, she's just amazing. Amazing, you know, because she's got that incredibly loopy sense. She, but she also totally, you know, is one of the great dramatic actresses of our time or actors. I mean, you know, she's just amazing. I felt so fortunate to get her because she combined that, you know, she was able to nail just the total goofiness of that character and also the emotional core. So. We definitely encourage our listeners to check that out. It is online. Greg, you mentioned some projects you have coming up. Is there a place where people can go to, to find out when they get released, especially like your books that are coming out, your poetry? Yes, please go to gregpak.com, G-R-E-G-P-A-K.com. That's the best place. I'm also on Twitter for as long as I'm on Twitter. I don't know how long that'll be, but <laughs> I, I keep saying that and I keep staying there. But the world as it is and that wicked machine being what it is, I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm on Twitter. My handle on Twitter is Greg Pak, G-R-E-G-P-A-K. So upcoming stuff, I have uh, this book, I Belong to You slash Motherland. This is the illustrated poetry book of which we spoke earlier, one about growing up in Texas and that experience of growing up in the natural world in Texas as an Asian American kid and grappling with the death of my mom. Uh, it's gorgeously illustrated by my mom's black and white photography from back in the oh. 70s and 80s, also by my own photography from, from, from a little bit later, and also tremendous art from a number of artists and comic book artists, including Sean Chen and Shing Yun Kor, Dustin Craig, and Ethan Young and Ann Smith, um, Irma Knivilla. It's designed to look like a scrapbook, you know? So it's got this whole scrapbook feel. It's designed to feel as organic and tactile as possible. 
I typed all of the text using an actual physical electric typewriter from the 80s on old paper and scanned that. So except for the very final credits page, there's no computer fonts. It's all analog. There's a real effort to create that 70s and 80s feel of uh, one of a kind you know, notebook that your friends would draw in and stuff, you know, I'm really proud of that. That's coming out. It's going to be available exclusively through Dragon's Lair Comics in Austin, Texas. They're going to have a order page online soon. Um, and there'll be links at gregpock.com where you can find all that stuff. So uh, that's the, that's the big completely loopy project that's coming up. Meanwhile, I'm continuing to write the Darth Vader book for Marvel. So you want to get some Vader action, <laughs> go, go buy that. And I'm writing a book called Duo for DC. It's a milestone book featuring an Asian-American couple, these scientists, and, and through various hijinks, they end up, both of them, in, inside the mind of one of them. And it basically asks the idea of what if the person you loved most in the world was in your mind all the time, could see, feel, hear every single thing you thought, felt, and saw. You know, we talk about finishing each other's sentences and being completely on the same page. What if you had to be completely on the same page at all times? How would that work? It's a mini series. First issue just came out, drawn by the brilliant Koi Pham. And uh, I highly recommend that. I've got a couple of other secret things that haven't been announced yet. That's some of the, the major stuff that's out in the world right now. What is your hope for the future of Asian American sci-fi? Oh, just more. I just wrote a, uh, an afterword for an anthology for Marvel, an anthology of Asian American characters and comics. That's what I said. I just said more. I just want more. You know, it's like, it's incredible what people have done in the past. Uh, it's incredible what people are doing now. There's an amazing legacy being built. We need to get beyond the time when one project, one character, one creator feels compelled to represent an entire community. There are as many different Asian American stories as there are Asian American people walking around, you know, and no one project should have the burden or responsibility to represent everybody. We just need more. What was the phrase I used? I want surfeit. I want excess. You know what I mean? Not just in terms of projects, but in terms of creators. I've been incredibly lucky to be a part of so many things and I'm going to keep fighting tooth and nail to keep being part of a lot of things, but I don't want to be the only one there. You know what I mean? And I'm not. Thank God. But we need a sustainable ecosystem in which many, many more creators from many, many different backgrounds can be part of telling their own stories and their own angles. I mean, there's a whole economic level to all of that, too. There's a whole ecosystem of nurturing new talent and paying people and getting more stuff out in the world. And I see a lot of people working on this from a lot of different angles. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we will just continue to see more. And I'll also say this doesn't just apply to Asian American stuff. This applies to storytelling from all kinds of different people across the board, you know? I think it's fitting that the short film format has been great for you because you could just do more. Let's do more stories, not have it all right on one story. One of the reasons I love making short films, one of the reasons I love improv comedy, and another reason I love making comics is you just keep moving. Once you get into it and once you get a hook in, you have a chance just to keep on doing stuff and keep on learning and also just keep creating, you know? I did a, a rough count and I've written over a hundred different comics for Marvel that star or co-star Asian American characters. A hundred over the years. I've written almost 600 comics, I think, during the course of my comics career for a bunch of different publishers. Making feature films is so incredibly hard, particularly for making independent feature films. Particularly if you're making independent feature films that feature non-white people. And suddenly you're like, you spent 10 years trying to get one film done. And I have huge amount of respect for that. And of course, entirely support that. But I feel incredibly fortunate to have been able to do a lot of smaller stories and keep that energy going and keep learning while doing that. And also just get stuff out there. I mean, the weird thing about working in mainstream comics, one of the glorious things is you get two people to agree to creating this new character 
it's all it takes. You just get your editor and, and one other person, you know, a couple of other people to say, yeah, let's do this. You do it, you get it out there. And then suddenly that's proof of concept and that character has a chance to go become something big in wider media. Amadeus Cho, it was just like, I was like, there's a niche that we need a young Asian American kid in the Marvel universe. And um, and now he's shown up in games and in, in animated shows and, uh, and we've done multiple series starring or co-starring him. And I have no inside knowledge. And even if I did, I couldn't say anything, but it's low hanging fruit to put him in the movies someday, you know? And it's not that like every, it's not like the be all and end all for every comics character is to go end up in the movies, but it's an undeniable significant thing in terms of representation, I guess. Yeah, we really appreciate because I think when we were doing the season, we were kind of like, okay, we're looking at sci-fi created by Asian Americans. And it does seem like film is one of the harder hurdles. So we did want to acknowledge there's other mediums where a lot of this is happening so much fast, you know, and you're involved in a lot of those too, like with, whether it's comics or literature. Well, it's the most money. That's why the more money gets involved, the more people have to say yes. And the more chances there are for people to say no. But, uh, you know, we just we keep plugging away. And y'all, I thank you again, because y'all are a big part of, you know, keeping this stuff alive, keeping people talking about it, spreading the word, helping more people find it. You know, like, I mean, that's always been my take. We live on a planet with billions of people. Almost any story somebody wants to tell, there's an audience out there for it somewhere. You know, it's just a question of reaching those people. So, Thank you so much for uh, helping the stories reach people who might care. Thanks again to Greg Pak for joining us for this episode. Again, next week, we're going to be talking about some of the other short films from future states, including films by Tanya Chopra and J.P. Chan. Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Tallis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is WakeUpSatSchool. Class dismissed. Hello, I'm Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper.